Hello? Oh, it works. Good. <clears throat> now, Pete outed me right at the very beginning of this morning as someone who has not preached before. This may not have been quite clear to some of you. I have never preached before. Ever. And some of you who don't know who I am will kind of think, well, neither have I. <laughs> I've been asked many times to preach. I've spent 20 years now teaching biblical studies in university, learning about it or, preach it or teaching it in university. I've been asked many times to preach in church. And I've always said, no. When I was asked to preach on this passage, I had a look at it and I thought, yeah, I understand that. I felt happy. I said, yes, I'll preach. When I looked at it earlier this week, I didn't understand it at all. I was terrified. What on earth was I doing saying I would talk about this text? That's what I want to talk about this morning. That sense that sometimes when we look at these texts, we read the scriptures, sometimes we really clearly understand what's being said. It really speaks to us. Other times we look at the same text and we won't have a clue what's going on. Why is that? Now this happens when we read the text for ourselves. But it also happens when we hear people preach on texts. Sometimes it really fires us up. It really kind of intrigues us. Gets into our system. Other times it doesn't. Now is it just the preacher? Is it just that we're asleep one week and we're awake the next? Now if you come up to me next week and say, that was really lousy last week. The preacher was awful. I may well ask whether you were asleep or not. We can have an argument about that. What's kind of made me think about this a little bit is there was a news story the other week <clears throat> about a Japanese engineer who had produced an ink which sits on the surface of the paper. It doesn't soak in. And one of the suggested uses of this ink was on very thin Bible paper. We can underline the texts, and it won't soak through to the other side. So let me ask you, is anybody here who underlines texts in their Bible? Anybody volunteer? Hands up. What's interesting when we do that is quite often when we go back later, we don't understand why we underlined it. In fact, quite often, particularly use different colours, you can underline several passages in the same section, and you won't understand why any of them have been underlined. Equally, other people find certain scriptures really important to them, and we sometimes don't understand why. Why is it it means so much to them and not to us? Why sometimes does a passage mean so much to us, but other people have to have it explained to them why we find it so significant? Why is that? Now, if we turn to Mark 12, <clears throat> what we find is that this is clearly not a new phenomenon. If we look at the disciples here and see what role they take, they are bystanders for pretty much the whole length of the chapter. All they do is watch. They hear the parable. They don't need it explained to them because we're told that the parable is very clear. Even Jesus' opponents understand what it means. 
They hear the hostile questions and they see Jesus answer. It's only at the very end that he calls them together and talks to them specifically. They're watching all the time. It's quite passive. It's very clear that the disciples have quite different experiences of their time with Jesus. The most obvious example of this is that sometimes he calls three of them out and takes them away as a smaller group. So they have experiences that the other disciples don't have. It's also clear that the disciples often argue about what they've seen. So when James and John go to Jesus and say, can we sit either side of you in the coming kingdom, what's the response of the other disciples? They're rather upset about it. They're indignant, it says. We tend to think they're indignant because they're jealous. Because they didn't have the idea first. But if you read the passage carefully, that's not clear at all. Jesus gathers them together and Jesus explains what it means to have status in the coming kingdom. The disciples have disagreed about what it means. And it's also clear that the disciples don't understand everything they see and hear until after Jesus has died and been raised. If we look at the Gospel of Luke, what we find is it's only at the end of the Emmaus Road, when Jesus comes and opens the scriptures to them and explains what's happened, that they really begin to grasp what's going on. So what they see is a mixture of different experience, different interpretation, and sometimes things that just require a bit of time to really kind of sink in. Now you might say to me that our position today is really like the disciples after the Emmaus Road. We have the scriptures. We have the four gospels, Paul's letters. We have the whole church tradition that builds on all of this material. I want to suggest that the fact that we can underline our Bibles and forget what it means, that we can hear someone preach and understand it one week and not the next, suggests that whatever is going on here, Whatever the kind of realities of our position post-resurrection, it certainly doesn't mean that our experience is fundamentally different to the experience that the disciples have in Mark 12. We are still watching and learning as time goes on. <clears throat> Excuse me. If we look at the parable that opens this section, this chapter, what we find is that it's soaked in hostility. It builds on the end of the previous chapter, this question where people come up to Jesus, ask him about his authority, he asks them about the Baptist. Was the Baptist a prophet from God? They won't answer, he won't tell them about his authority. If we look at this particular parable, it's set during the week leading up to Jesus' death. The church tends to preach on Jesus' death rather a lot. You may have noticed. There is a time in the church here where this is the focus of what we do. If we look at this parable, the background to it is in Isaiah 5, the parable of the vineyard there. The vineyard is God's Israel. Okay? 
So Israel is the vineyard. In this parable, which is different to Isaiah 5, in this parable it's the tenants who are the problem. So, messengers come from the the owner of the vineyard. Who are these messengers? Well, they're the prophets. Who are mistreated in a variety of different ways. And then the son comes. And if I asked you who the son is, who's the son? The parable says that Jesus dies. Of course, in the setting when the parable is delivered, Jesus has not yet died. And yet still, people understand what's being said. It's very hard for us to read this parable and to misunderstand its intent. The church preaches on this parable all the time. It's set in Passion Week. We understand what it means to underline a text like this. Okay? But not all texts are like this. If we move on in this passage, we find some hostile questions set to Jesus. So two questions that we get. What should we do with our money, with our taxes? Will we be married in heaven? Phrased as, here's a man with seven wives. No, here's a wife with seven husbands. How will it work? Now we could have a sermon on each of these passages. And I could tell you what these texts mean. And that would be perfectly fine. You could read these texts for yourself and you could underline them. That's the meaning that you get. That's how you understand God speaking to you on that occasion. That's you hearing God's voice. But there are limits to how we can understand those kinds of passages. So I want you to do something for me now. I want you to open the Bible in front of you. So when you've got one. Do you have a Bible in front of you? Don't worry if you don't. You don't need to go and fetch one, honest. And turn to the book of Proverbs. Now this will test you out. How do you find the book of Proverbs? If you open it in the middle, that'll be Psalms. Just go a bit to the right and you'll find the book of Proverbs. Okay, I want you to find Proverbs 26, but I don't want you to read it. Just open it at that page. What I want you to do is I'm going to split you in two groups. I want to give this side a verse, this side a verse. And when I tell you, I want you to read it quickly, and I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to shout out the answer. Loud as you can. Okay? No peeking at the other verse. No cheating. Okay. So this side, I want you to read chapter, verse 4, and this side, verse 5. The question is, should you answer a fool according to his folly? What's the answer? Oh, good. 
I've always loved these two verses. They kind of reduce these things to the level of absurdity. That really kind of works for me. What happens in Mark 12 with render unto Caesar, and this comment about whether you're married in heaven, this is a kind of proverbial answer to a question. Now, if you look at the two proverbs we've just looked at, there's no answer, there's no reconciling these things, and that's not the point. A proverb answers the question then, on that occasion. Jesus is very, very good at this. He's so good at this that people stop asking him questions altogether. But it's actually quite easy to look at these passages and find problems with them, what we can see as problems. So, for example, rendering unto Caesar. If you look at the history of interpretation of this text, what you find is some people combine it with Romans 13, where we're supposed to kind of behave well towards the state, and they see it as an argument for paying taxes. Other people read it, and they see it as an argument for not paying taxes. The question here is, should you pay unjust taxes? Should you pay, for example, to support a war that you disagree with? So although the question, the answer to the question works on that occasion, it won't always work. So I can preach on it, and you guys can take a message away that's perfectly fine and well understood. But there are days when this just will not work. It's kind of ironic, given that this is National Marriage Week, which I, I didn't know until I, I walked through the door, that then we have this passage about what happens in heaven. You won't be married in heaven. Now, in one way, that works as a very nice answer to a particular sticky question. But it does raise other questions. One of the questions that this raised for the early church, particularly with its interest in monasticism, and the idea that proper Christianity could only take place in a kind of monastic setting, was the question of sex. This passage seems to suggest that there is no sex in heaven. How does that work? I once heard a paper on this, which I have to admit, um, you may have seen there's an advert on television at the moment about a guy who's kind of naked and goes into a sauna. I think it's a Specsavers advert. And the steam all clears, and it's Gordon Ramsay's kitchen. And a certain cucumber gets some rough treatment with a knife, and the guy crosses his legs. Okay, that was me after this, this paper I heard. In the early church, there are two possible responses to this question of what happens in heaven as far as marriage and sex are concerned. Either our passions must change or our bodies must change. Now, the argument being put forward by the person talking about this was that, actually, you should practice being in heaven now. In other words, celibacy is the proper preparation for heaven. I took away from this paper rather the idea that when I got to heaven, when I got to the pearly gates, it wouldn't be so much St. Peter with a handshake working for me. He would be in you know, a kind of full surgical team or possibly 
possibly just a blowtorch. I wasn't sure how it would work. Hearing God's voice through the scriptures can involve us hearing a scripture that is set within the church's year. It has a very regular kinds of meaning. But it can also mean reading scriptures in a more ad hoc way. They're meanings for a day. They're meanings where we can underline them, and when we go back, we may well not understand why we have underlined them at all. Both of those we should expect to happen. Now, it's interesting that we also had a creed earlier on. A rather non-standard creed, I thought. Now, that's not a problem for me. I rather like the fact that it was non-standard. What's clear from what I'm saying, I think, is that we as Christians are not defined by knowing a certain set of information. There is nothing that we learn, and that's it. We walk away. If we look at the creeds of the early church, the ones that we tend to use, the church tends to use to define orthodoxy, there is nothing in them at all about Jesus' life except the fact that he is born of Mary and he dies in the time of Pontius Pilate. There is nothing else there. If we learnt that, and that was the sum total of what we were to know, it would be very easy. But it couldn't be said that we cared about Jesus and what he did while he was alive. It's a fact that learning a creed does not mean you are a believer at all. This is not simply a case of us getting a certain set of information and somehow we have made it. So I'm going to read a quote to you. This is one that I've always liked. This is from a guy called Thomas Akempis in a very famous devotional work called The Imitation of Christ. This is what he writes. What good does it to speak learnedly about the Trinity if, lacking humility, you displease the Trinity? Indeed, it is not learning that makes a man holy and just, but a virtuous life makes him pleasing to God. I would rather feel contrition than know how to define it. For what would it profit us to know the whole Bible by heart and the principles of all the philosophers if we live without grace and the love of God? Vanity of vanities and all is vanity except to love God and serve him alone. Now this notion of local answers, partial answers, is really what we find in the New Testament altogether. The early church was quite interested in producing generalized teachings, a way of kind of giving people what they needed to know. One of the things they did was they mutilated the letter to Romans. If you look at the manuscript tradition, what you find is that sometimes chapter 16 is missing, and sometimes chapters 15 and 16 are missing. And yet, in the Bibles that we have, those chapters are back. Chapter 16 is Paul basically going, hello, Hi, remember me to such and such. Romans is a letter sent to a particular church in a particular time. But we also have this kind of evidence of a localized 
interaction with God because there are certain things mentioned in the New Testament that are not there for us to look at. There's mention of a letter of Paul to Laodicea. In 1 Corinthians 5, he talks about a previous letter that he had sent to the church. We don't have that. So the collection of texts we have is a partial one. Partial but sufficient for our purposes and for God's purposes. The scriptures are not a system that we can learn and that having learnt it, we can simply throw it away. That's not how this works. In our walk with God, we will find that sometimes we hear things a certain way and other times we hear them another way. Whether it's through preaching or whether it's through our own reading, whether it's through prayer, whatever form in which we encounter the word of God. So the answer really is that we can't ever stop seeking God's voice. But the message we should take from this is that we should always expect to hear it. Now up until this point, I've been talking about this as though it's kind of rather individualistic. Someone is preaching and you're hearing. Or it's you with your text underlining things, not understanding. But if you look at the rest of this passage, it's fairly clear that that's not how we should understand what's going on. The disciples are a group. Yes, they hear things themselves. They take their own understandings away from things. But they also interact. They argue. They bicker. They're taught as a group. Later on, they learn the meaning of certain things that they'd heard before and not understood. And they're brought to a right understanding of things. This chapter finishes with two additional stories. The story of the scribe who comes to Jesus and asks, what's the greatest commandment? And the story about the widow who puts in the two coins. Now what's interesting is that both of these two characters seem to have no role in the church whatsoever. There's no evidence that the scribe ever becomes a Christian. Or that the widow does. But look how positively the scribe is, is discussed here. You are not far from the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Compare this with the same story in Luke. In that text, the scribe is said, is described as a lawyer for a start, which doesn't really help. It's described as a lawyer who tempts Jesus with this story. Mark, of all the Gospels, is unusual in that he is very positive about the people around the disciples. The disciples learn from outsiders all the time in Mark. The story of the widow... This is when Jesus gathers the disciples together. Look what she's done, he says. All these rich people are putting in lots of money, but it's only part of what they have. She has put in everything that she has. The disciples are learning all the time. 
what it means to hear God's voice and to walk in the path that God has set. And here they're learning it from people who are on the outside, people on the edge. We in this room form a group with a great deal of shared wisdom. When do we underline passages in our texts? When we really get them, when we understand? Sometimes it's their setting within the church's year. Sometimes because they mean something for us for that day. But it's also the case that we should expect to learn and grow over time as a group. We should expect to learn from each other's experience of hearing God's voice. As Paul writes to his brothers and sisters in Romans 12:2, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. Is good, pleasing, and perfect will. Be transformed. It's nice to think this could be done as an individual. But most of us probably will recognize that that's rather hopeful. That's not the way that it works. Life is hard. Life knocks us. It's the shared wisdom that we have, that common experience of hearing God's voice, that means that when one of us is struggling, other people can come alongside them. Maybe it will just be a shared word or two. Maybe it'll be a hug. Maybe it'll be a pint. But in that kind of experience, what's really happening is that the friends around us are taking our Bibles, opening them up, and the bits that we once underlined but no longer understand, they are telling us why we underlined it in the first place. We are not on our own. In the hard times, we are together. Now this means that we have to share sometimes our experience of hearing God's voice. This isn't the same for everybody. Some people will express it very differently. Sometimes people will express it very, very uncomfortably. I had somebody once come up to me and say, I've bought a dog, God told me to. I knew somebody else who was trying to make a decision on whether she should get married or not and she was waiting for God to tell her which way she should leap. Shared wisdom is worth a lot in such situations. How should we respond? That's where I want to leave it. Sometimes... We hear the voice of God through a regular set cycle that the church 
embeds within us. Sometimes we hear God on our own. Hopefully, much of the time, we will hear God through the actions and words of our brothers and sisters within the church. Amen.